I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for joining me for Podcast Playlist's annual Halloween Spooktacular. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. We're going to hear a fabulously frightening selection of stories today. We've got tales about toys that go bump in the night and an interview with a legendary horror movie director. But first, we're about to call upon the spirits to help guide us through this episode, and you're just in time. Let us begin. Hello? Is anyone with us? If you're with us, please make your presence known. Okay, let me try that again because usually they're quite slow actually. So let me, okay. Hello? Hello, spirit. Answer our call. Make your presence known. (laughs) It's so embarrassing because usually they come when I'm not recording things. So it's just... It's stupid. Um, You know what? Okay. Uh, I actually have a direct line to the spirit realm, so let me just give them a phone call. Hold on. The realm you are trying to reach is unavailable. Goodbye. Hmm. Okay. That's fine. I I, I don't know why they always give me a fake number. (sighs) I don't know what this relationship is, but anyway... uh, I guess I'll stick to hosting, message received, and I'll leave the spirit contacting to the experts, like the host of the first show we're going to hear today. I Talk to Ghosts is hosted by a medium named Jennifer Page, and in each episode, she shares a few scary stories. Let's start things off with this scary story that involves a pair of pants. I'm a skeptic, but this happened to me. I don't understand it, and I won't attempt to explain it. My wife and I moved into my grandparents' house when they had moved into a nursing home. Grandmother passed away, but grandfather stayed alert and active for years, so much so that my mother and I, when we moved all of my grandfather's things, We made sure to label all the boxes so we could immediately get to anything he wanted. But eventually, well past the age of 90, Grandfather passed away. His funeral was planned, and Mom retrieved a suit in which to bury him in. But it was the day before he was to be buried 
in the late afternoon while my wife was at work. I taught at a community college then and had just gotten home. I went upstairs to go to the bathroom. As I got to the head of the stairs and looked into the bathroom, I saw the mirrored door of the medicine cabinet slowly, oh so very slowly, swing open. My hair rose. This door had a latch. Then I heard a creak and looked to the left, and the door of the closet where I kept my clothes, the same closet where my grandfather kept his clothes, just as deliberately swung open. I admit this door had an old-fashioned latch and didn't close at all that well, but still, this had never happened before. I gritted my teeth and walked forward and first shut the closet door, then the medicine cabinet door. No cold chills, no spooky lights or noises, nothing. However, a few days later my wife asked where one of my gray pairs of pants had gone. I still don't know. I never saw them again. I bought another pair to match my suit coat. Was grandfather wearing them? I don't know. It was a closed casket service, and I didn't ask to see. I guess I didn't want to know. But my mother thinks, and I tend to agree, that Grandpa, who was always a snappy dresser, didn't care for her choice of suit pants. The day I had my weird experience was the day he was prepared for his burial. Coincidence? Well, nothing else like that ever happened again while we lived in the house for another five years. I've never seen those pants again. Who knows, but ever since then, I've had a lot more tolerance towards the paranormal, and will be, until someone can find that pair of pants. That was I Talk to Ghosts. It's hosted by Jennifer Page. The next story comes from Snap Judgment Presents Spooked, which is, dare I say, a Halloween podcast staple. At one point in his life, Francisco Vasquez found a doll in his pocket every single day. And with each passing day, he found himself getting sicker and weaker. He suspected that the dolls may have something to do with it, but how did they keep finding him in the first place? Here's Spooked with more. The village I grew up in is called San Jose del Progreso in Oaxaca. That was my home until I was 22 years old. This was at my aunt's birthday party. She's the oldest sister on my dad's side. I wanted to bridge the gap between the families. I wanted to reach out to them because they had not spoken to each other for so long. 
It was dinner time. They start serving soda and water, but I didn't like soda. And the birthday woman walked over to me and said hi. She greets me, she hands me the cup of Jamaica, hibiscus tea. Then we all sit down and have dinner. So I leave the party and I felt fine. But four or five days later, I can start to feel like some kind of dizziness. I felt my vision suddenly getting blurry. I start to feel my knee hurting, my right knee at first. Some really strong stomach pain somewhere around my belly, really faint at first and getting worse later, much worse. I come back home. Once I'm home, I do the typical thing, take off my clothes, get ready to sleep, and looking inside my pockets, my pants pocket, there's a doll. A tiny, tiny little doll. I find a tiny doll, a tiny doll. It wasn't larger than an inch. And it smelled like I was sniffing an orange or a piece of panela-style cheese. Panela? What struck me about the doll was that it was a very small doll, but it had really fine features. Her eyes, her little mouth, the nose, everything. Even the short hair over her shoulders. She looked like she was wearing a headband, just like little girls do. So the first thing that I thought was, somebody must have slipped this in my pocket. Maybe someone from the family. I didn't think too much about it. I just left it there. I put it on a nightstand I had next to my bed. I go to sleep. The next morning, I just leave for work. After work, I went to my bedroom and took off my clothes, my pants. And for the second consecutive night, I found another doll. A little doll, the same size as the previous one, but a different color. Different color this time. I looked at the nightstand where I had left the doll the night before thinking maybe I picked it again by accident but no there she was the doll from last night and this was a new one well maybe someone at work or school there playing me jokes that's it I'll give the dolls away later. I went to sleep and next day, same thing, same routine, always the same. Get up, take a shower, have breakfast, go to town, get to work. But the pain was getting so much worse. It was getting much, much worse. The pain around my belly was getting sharper. And as the days went by, my vision was getting blurrier. So for the third night, I come back home from work. And once again, a new doll. And sometime later, I started to have other problems, such as nightmares. I don't know exactly how long after this happened, but my mom told me one day, hey, I was cleaning your room and I found you have some dolls there. There's a line of dolls over your nightstand. What's up with that? She said. And my sister, she asked, are you collecting them? Well, no, not exactly, I replied. I didn't want to talk about it. I don't know why, but something deep inside was telling me not to talk about it. Well, those are quite a few dolls, she said. Those are quite a few. Can I have them? My sister said, I like them. 
No, no, just leave them there. Leave them there, I said. Something was also telling me, I guess from my subconscious, that I had to leave those dolls alone. Every single day, a new doll. Every single day, the pain is getting more intense. Every single day, I was losing weight. If the weather was cold around December, it gets real cold in Oaxaca, I would sweat. I was getting weaker. My skin was turning yellow. I ran into a friend of mine. He said, hey, what's wrong with you? You don't fit in your clothes anymore. You look sick. What's up with you? You have eye bags. Aren't you sleeping? Your eyes are turning yellow. I think you should visit a doctor. I went to the doctor. I think it was Friday. So they plugged me into every single machine in the office. You know how doctors are. He immediately lays me down because I was way too skinny already. He's making a visual examination. He looks at my mom and he says, You know what, Doña Silvina? I'm sorry, but I can't give Paco any prescription. That's my nickname ever since I was a child, Paco. And my mom says, But why? Just look at him. He was fainting on his way here. He says, Yeah, but every test showed negative results. He's not sick. I wasn't sleeping anymore. It had been months, weeks without any sleep, weeks without drinking water. I had a terrible urge to drink water, but I knew that if I tried to drink some, an intense urge to throw up would overcome me. But nothing would come out. Everything was already too frightening. I even lost my job. And so, one day, it must have been Sunday. Yeah, it was Sunday. I went for a walk in downtown Oaxaca City. And I clearly remember that I sat down on a bench in the Oaxaca City Square. While I was sitting there, a woman, well, in Oaxaca we call them gitanitas. They are fortune tellers, tarot readers. It's a young woman, she's about 30-something. She's passing by and she offers me a palm reading. Care for a palm reading, young man? No, thanks. Thank you. I'm skeptical, not believing any of that. For some reason, she's insisting and says, I truly want to read your poem, young man. You know what? I'm going to do it for free. She said something in the lines of, young man, you should understand that what's happening to you is not natural. You can look around for the most important doctor you may find, but they won't cure you because it's not on their hands to cure you, she said. What is happening to you? It's a tragedy. So I stare at the woman, and I accept her offer. Give me your right hand, now your left hand, she says. She grabs both of my hands, and then she starts to speak about the things I was going through. Listen, young man, she said. I know you can heal. And the woman takes out some pieces of paper. And she writes down an address and a local phone number. She hands me a note. She says, go to this place. Trust me, you gotta go as soon as you can if you want to leave. That's what she said. If you want to leave, go there as soon as you can. This is too much. Okay. 
From PRX and KQED, that was Snap Judgment Presents Spooked. It's hosted by Glenn Washington. That episode was produced by Fernando Hernandez and Eric Yanez, with original score by Renzo Gorario. If you'd like to hear the rest of this unbelievable story, we're going to share the link on our website at cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. And while you're there, you can find details of all the shows that we'll hear today. This next show is a new investigative series that involves murder, mystery, and ghosts. The show is called Ghost Story, and funny enough, the host Tristan Redman is a seasoned journalist who doesn't believe in ghosts. But he remembers weird things happening in the bedroom he lived in as a teenager. And get this, years later, he discovered the people who lived in that house after his family were visited by the ghost of a faceless woman. It doesn't stop there. It turns out that the house next door is where his wife's great-grandmother, Naomi Dancy, was murdered in 1937. He wonders if it all could be connected, and so he investigates. In this clip, Tristan Redman introduces the Dancy family and will learn more about Naomi Dancy's murder. And just a warning, this clip contains some graphic descriptions of violence that may be disturbing to some listeners. Here's Ghost Story. We've now come to the murder story. But before I tell it, I want to tell you a bit about my wife's family, the Dancys, because the murder didn't happen in my family. It happened in theirs. And the Dancys are a pretty impressive bunch. I'm going to take you through a tiny family tree. I'll start with the bald guy in the beret, or a beret to you Americans. He's my wife's grandfather. He was the one who announced that his mother had been murdered in the house next door. He was a well-known headmaster of elite private schools in England, including the one Kate Middleton went to. Then there's his son, my father-in-law, Jonathan Dancy, who's also bald and wears a beret. He's a pretty famous philosopher. What if lying is ethical? in this situation? What if a certain actions aren't universally good or bad, like Jonathan Dancy says? So much so that he's name dropped in an episode of The Good Place. Jonathan Dancy, are you talking about moral particularism? We never even covered that. And then there's his son, Hugh Dancy, my brother-in-law. First positions, please. Roll the camera. That's him in the latest Downton Abbey movie. And action! (gasps) Coming down the stairs, not expecting to find him there, waiting for you. Hugh is Hollywood famous. He's not bald, and frankly, he doesn't look great in a beret. He's been in a bunch of movies and TV shows. Black Hawk Down, Hannibal, and my personal favorite, obviously, Ella Enchanted. You're the first maiden I've met who hasn't swooned at the sight of me. Then maybe I've done you some good. And then there's my wife, Kate. We met at university. These days, she works for the United Nations. Before that, she was a diplomat, And as if she couldn't be more impressive, she literally used to save children for Save the Children. Let's go straight to the expert on the UN, Kate Redman. Kate, what can you tell us about the decision? So I work at UNESCO, which is one of the UN agencies. It works on education. I'm not a dancy, but I'm also pretty bald these days. And when I married Kate, the dancies gave me a beret of my own so I could fit in. When you first meet the dancies, 
they can be a bit intimidating. But they're also warm and funny. And after 20 years of hanging around them, they've become my family too. But in all that time, I hardly ever heard anyone talk about the murder. It wasn't a secret. But aside from that lunch with Kate's grandfather, it just never really came up in conversation. Until I started asking questions about it. What story did your dad tell you when you were 18? That his mother had been murdered. Not until you were 18? Mm. This is my father-in-law. I call him Johnny. He's the good place philosopher. He seems to be the only family member who was told about the murder on purpose. So he has the closest to the official version of it. He was driving me back from Oxford. I must have been an undergraduate there. And we were just going over the Ridgeway. And he just started telling me this story. Perhaps he started off by saying something like, I was younger than you when my mother died and your grandmother didn't die a natural death. But I should tell you how it happened. The woman who was killed was Johnny's grandmother and my wife's great-grandmother, named Naomi Dancy. The year was 1937, and Naomi was a pioneering doctor in London. She and her husband lived in the house on Queen's Road, just next door to where I grew up. So my grandmother's brother was living in the house, Morris. He was sort of disturbed because uh, he was being damaged in the war. Naomi's brother, Morris, was struggling with shell shock after World War I. He'd come home with a piece of shrapnel in his brain, having lost an eye. I don't know where this detail originated from, but it would later be reported that Naomi had particularly beautiful eyes. And as Morris lost sight in his own, he developed a deep jealousy of them. Anyhow, one night, Naomi was in bed, she'd gone to bed early. And Morris came into the room and and shot her in both eyes. And then he went into the upstairs loo and cut his throat. Um, that's the story, really. Uh, yeah, that's the story. This is why, when I learned about the faceless woman in my childhood bedroom, I thought about Naomi. I wanted to know more about her and what happened that night. Who was Naomi? Uh, well, that is a very good question. I know nothing. I didn't even know her name until you started working on this. Did you know anything else about her? Nope. Except no one seems to know much about her. I mean, as far as the family goes, there is nothing. Is it, is it Naomi? Am I saying the name right? And in fact, as the story has been passed down through the generations, it's become less about Naomi and more about the man who survived to tell the tale. The critical narrative part was Vader jumped off the stairs, like to dodge a bullet or something like this. Because there was someone else in the house that night. Naomi's husband, John Dancy, my wife's great-grandfather, known in the family as Fader. The way I've always told it was that Fader not only switched off the lights, but also flung himself backwards down the stairs. The name Fader is a sort of play on the word father. Father, Fader. Anyway, the story goes that the brother Morris tried to kill Fader that night too, but Fader dodged the bullet and narrowly escaped. 
It was it was an action story. Great granddad had done like a really cool James Bond jumping over the banisters, shooting out the light, do a like one of those roles that commandos do, and then and then shot the guy. What are you doing your hands? I'm doing the guns, like. More like a gunslinger. <laughs> All details of Naomi have fallen away. And what remains is admiration for Fader and his daring escape. Is that like, does that make him a hero? Yes. And this makes some sense. Fader has sort of an outsized influence on the family. They say it was Fader who established an obsession with education that the Dancys retain to this day. Even outside of the family, his presence is larger than life. There's a BBC documentary about the guy, his portrait once hung in the Royal Academy of Arts. He's the family patriarch, and one of the reasons we're calling him Fader here is that there are so many John Dancys in this family. There's one with his name in every generation. Which brings us to the third story, the family drama. Because just two days after I heard from my old neighbour about the ghost in my teenage bedroom, my wife discovered something. Something that totally called into question this heroic image of Fader and the family story of the murder. Can you remember the story of how you ended up finding that article? Was it like a sort of Google wormhole you were basically in? I go down so many Google wormholes, yeah. Kate's helping her dad with an obituary for her grandfather, the one that was headmaster at Kate Middleton School. She's poking around online to see what's out there, and she remembers him telling us about his mother's murder in the house next door. And I looked up something like Dancy, murder, Richmond, not expecting really to find anything, and I did. I came across this crazy article on the National Archives website, and I, I had no idea why it was there. It was written by an archivist who happened to stumble upon the file from Naomi's murder. Apparently, most murder files are kept in one building in London in the National Archives. And out of thousands of cases, this murder stood out to her. She found the police files so strange that she decided to write about it. She gives the broad strokes of the murder story, but then she raises some serious questions about what happened that night. So, I think it says... Murder-suicide or double murder, question mark. It was mind-blowing for me because the article questioned who was the guilty party and suggested that potentially it was my great-granddad and not the brother. And that was the first I'd considered the idea or even read any suggestion that the case was not sort of closed and clean and, and that the right guilty party had been found. Kate forwards the article to her family to see if this could be true, and none of them had heard anything like it before. It was hard to tell how seriously to take the article, but at the very least, we now realise that there was a different version of the story floating around and it was totally unlike the official Dancy family story. I mean, obviously the question was, did Faith do it? Killed them both. That was Ghost Story from Wondery and Pineapple Street Studios. It's hosted by Tristan Redman.
Have you ever gone on a drive and had the distinct feeling that someone is watching you? Maybe even following you? Or do you look in the back seat just in case? I do all the time. This next podcast dives deep into the urban legend about the killer in the backseat. Here's the show Weird Distractions with more. As you're driving along, you notice a truck behind you. It's an average pickup truck, maybe a Chevrolet or a GMC. The person driving the truck appears to be on a mission to tailgate you, though. You roll your eyes and turn up your radio, ignoring the behind you as you drive just slightly over the speed limit. The truck driver behind you then blares their headlights. You can't help but look up and become even more irritated as you see their hands dramatically fly around, as if they're doing an interpretive hand dance. The truck continues to get closer to your vehicle, which is increasing your anxiety. What is this person doing? Are they trying to kill us both, you think? You decide to hit the gas pedal and feel your car accelerate below you. Before long, the truck behind you is out of sight. Finally, you pull into your home. Still a bit spooked from the truck driver, you find yourself rushing into your home, your safe space, and looking out the front window. What if they followed me home, you wonder, almost out of breath from sprinting from the car to your front door? That's when the truck pulls in behind your car. Your heart drops into the pit of your stomach. A man gets out of the truck, looking concerned. After locking eyes with him, he begins to yell, Call 911! Call the cops! There is someone in the back seat of your car. Before you even fully process the words floating from his mouth, a larger man, dressed in black, gripping a broad axe, pops out from your back seat. The guy from the truck confronts this tall man, but his words don't stand a match against the man wielding the broad axe. Your street becomes a bloody scene, and you find yourself unable to move from the front window. The truck driver, you see, was trying to warn you about the killer in your back seat. The little narrative I just read to you is a rendition of the eerie urban legend called The Killer in the Backseat, or sometimes legend is simply referred to as High Beams. You may be curious as to where this urban legend even came from. It's hard to pinpoint the exact details, but some resources point that it was first written sometime in the 1960s, somewhere within the United States of America. For example, according to the book titled Indiana Folklore, the story hadn't really been recorded as much. However, that doesn't dismiss its traveling through spoken storytelling. It wouldn't surprise me if perhaps it even started earlier than the 1960s, and maybe it was even made up, somewhere else across this floating rock we call Earth. Nonetheless, it appears that the North American version of this tale seems to kind of have the same narrative to a certain degree. The main character, or victim, is often a female who drives into a gas station or some kind of safe place to rest momentarily. As she leaves, she is then followed by some kind of dude. Typically, this female is alone. I haven't really seen many retellings where she's with someone else, so I think it's safe to say most stories depict her being alone. As she leaves, she is then followed by some kind of man, typically a burly man or some kind of lumberjack in a vehicle, usually a truck, who is seemingly tailgating her, flashing his high beams and all around being a douche behind the wheel. However, once the woman is out of her vehicle, she finds out that the man driving behind her was trying to rescue her as he witnessed a man in her backseat with a weapon. Now, sometimes this man or 
what I'm going to refer to as the killer, has a weapon of like a meat cleaver or some other tales say that this person has a knife, maybe they have an axe. It just, it really varies. I think the takeaway here is that the killer is either packing heat or is just on a mission to kill. It may come to no surprise that this urban legend from the 1960s has had its fair share of modern critiques. One critique comes from a Snopes article that points out the sexist and outdated undertones of the urban legend, highlighting that the prey or victim behind the driver's wheel is always a female, and both the evil fiend and the rescuer are male. Which is interesting due to some believing that the urban legend actually stems from a real-life situation involving a male cop stumbling upon a male killer in his backseat. The year was 1964, and an officer had, allegedly, stopped in a gas station in New York City. I don't know why, but I'm imagining that it's really hot, there's a lot of smog, and the officer is just in a cranky mood. As the officer pumped his gas, an escaped murderer hid within the back seat, not realizing that he just got into the vehicle of a police officer. When the officer went to put his snack in the back seat, which one retelling mentions it was a box of donuts, a little too on the nose if you ask me, the officer then finds this other man in his back seat and proceeds to shoot him. This situation clearly does not involve a lone woman or someone falling behind the cop trying to warn him of a killer hiding in his back seat. The weird thing about this tale is that I kept coming across it in doing this week's weird distraction research, but I couldn't find any names. So it could be that this story in and of itself is also an urban legend. It's really hard to say. And I think that's the beauty and the wonder and just the overall mystery of urban legends in a nutshell. Just when you think you've come across something that is real life, there's this weird overshadowing of missing information. That was the independent podcast, Weird Distractions. It's a Cultivate Podcast Network production, and it's hosted by Alex Underbake. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a fright for both 90s babies and parents of 90s babies. Have you ever owned a Furby? When Furbies were first released in stores, they were the must-own toy. And if I were to describe what it looked like, they were a hybrid of kind of an owl, a guinea pig, and a gremlin. What made Furby so special was that they were the first ever robotic toy that could develop language skills, giving them the ability to speak back to you. It was cutting-edge technology for toys in the 90s, but underneath their cute, fuzzy exterior, many people claimed there may have been something sinister. With more, here's a collaboration between two great spooky podcasts, American Hysteria and Unspookable. I had a Furby that I loved for a few months, then I turned her off and set her up in my closet. I didn't want to give her away. She sat there, in view, 
with her eyes closed for probably four years. One day, I opened my closet door. Her eyes are open. She blinked at me. Then I got rid of her. Sorry, Malika. One of my elementary school friends' house burnt down. Electrical, no funny business, and nobody was hurt. So we were going through some boxes of his stuff and trying to find anything that was salvageable or still usable. I pulled his charred husk of a Furby out and looked at it for a second. As I'm about to throw it in the trash pile, it starts talking. I flip out and whip it into the road where it gets run over by a passing ice cream truck. We go to investigate and its mouth is still opening and closing, but no sound came out. The thought of it still haunts me to this day. That's terrifying. That's very scary. I get like, you know, I I almost feel like I got goosebumps from that one. (laughs) Yeah, that creeps me out. You know, there are other legends around Furby, and I think one of the creepiest that I heard a lot of was that people would either throw their Furbies like out the window in desperation because it was so annoying or so creepy, or they'd throw it in the garbage and then magically it would reappear the next night on their shelf. And that was uh, something that really, really freaked people out for obvious reasons. People would also talk about how if you spend enough time taunting your Furby, you could get it to actually say swear words because part of the attraction to Furby was the concept that you were able to teach this Furby new words. So it started out only being able to speak its kind of baby-like Furbish language, but as time went on and you actually spent time and like befriended this robot, it would be able to mimic words and phrases that you said. So there were stories not only of uh, of the Furby repeating these bad words, but also someone claimed that their Furby started singing an opera and another person claimed, you know, that of course Satan was talking through the Furby, which is another uh, possibility in terms of it learning demonic uh, Latin. And so there was a lot of different things that that the Furby could do. And because of that, or a lot of things people thought the Furby could do. And because of that, the idea kind of spread both to parents and kids. So as mentioned, uh, there were there was a lot of interest in this toy. And I was wondering, because I definitely remember the intense, you know, basically fights to get this hot new toy that there were certainly not enough of for maybe the surprising demand that came in during Christmas of 1998. What do you guys remember? I remember, and sort of speaking to what I was saying before, like maybe that was something my parents were more tapped into. And that was part of the like, absolutely not. Like we are not trying to buy into this like mass obsession with these kind of creepy, colorful owl robots. I absolutely remember this era. Uh, This was maybe the third or fourth Christmas season in a row where there was the big toy that everyone had to have. And it was getting news coverage almost every single night, uh, you know, in December leading up to uh, 
you know, winter holidays. This was the thing to have fighting in stores. There's no reserves. There's no layaways, if that's a thing anyone remembers on these toys. It was cash in hand and people bidding or buying them off of each other in the parking lot. You were a good parent if you could secure one and a terrible parent undeserving of love if you couldn't. Like it did feel kind of like with Beanie Babies or with with uh, something like that, where there were ones that were sort of like cooler to have, like you were like you were, you know, more popular at school if you had, you know, this type of Furby versus this one. I wish I could remember more about like the variety of of what they all looked like, but I just remember distinctly having this impression that like one of my mm. best friends at the time had a good one and and it's, it's just funny because what what does that even mean anymore like maybe it's fur was a different color or something but um yeah there were just there were just ones that were more popular than others too I have a distinct memory of like a blue like blue moon ice cream Furby with like purple spots and that one being like whoa yeah, it's the princess die, beanie baby <laughs> of the Furby world. <laughs> exactly. Well, how about I read to you a little part of an article in the Odessa American from December of 1998, okay? Yes. Fury erupted at a Walmart in Lynn, Massachusetts, when customers who had waited overnight found out there were only 30 Furbies in stock. Two women were injured in a Furby stampede at a Walmart in Illinois. Furby shoppers in Denver knocked over displays and trampled bystanders. Arlington shoppers became abusive and started cursing Walmart employees when they learned that there weren't any more Furbies in stock. So, you know, we're getting actual injuries because of the desire for this toy and the mania that parents had to make sure, as mentioned, that they were the good parents who got the good toy for their kids. And in fact, it's funny because I've read a couple different articles that really talked about how kids themselves didn't seem to be that overly excited about Furby. And it was something that the parents almost decided that kids wanted for them, right? I don't know of anyone when I bring up Furby that looks back and says, oh, I loved my Furby. You know, I just got along great with my Furby and it really made my life richer. You know, everybody looks back and says like, I don't know, there was something going on with that that creeped me out. Exactly. This thing starts scaring kids immediately as we've started saying what are kids scared of that's happening? You know, we've talked a little bit about uh, these things talking unexpectedly, maybe in the middle of the night. They're speaking an invented language that uh, feels a little bit off, and they're not exactly attractive or like anything of this world. You know, these are some of the immediate knee-jerk, like, yeah, this thing is terrifying. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that these toys were considered in their way to be sentient, meaning that they were able to think 
and possibly even feel the way that a human being would. And before that, I mean, they're really we've sure we've thought about, you know, creepy dolls. We've thought, oh, maybe that doll is possessed or, you know, maybe I heard my toy talking in the night, but it usually could be, you know, written off as a dream or something like that. But when it came to Furby, it indeed did wake up in the night and start talking from your closet. That's not an urban legend. That's just new technology. Um, And I think that that combined with the, we'll learn a new word today, the uncanny valley effect, which is when something appears close to human, but not human enough for us to recognize it as a human. So when we look at Furby, we see some human-like traits. We see the eyes moving. We hear the human voice. And it's coming out of something that that creeps us out naturally because naturally we are trying to discern, we're trying to figure out when something is safe, when something is human. But if we see something that looks like it's not human, then our brain thinks that that that's a threatening thing. Like there's something off about that. And some theories about why that is, is like when we were hunter gatherers and we saw something like a dead body, right? Like someone who's, who was human, but now looks slightly off. We don't want to approach that because that's mm-hmm. dangerous. Or if we were to see someone, for example, who had been bitten by a raccoon and had rabies, and we might notice that they're, act, they're human, but they're acting off. Like there's something wrong with what we're seeing. And so we have this kind of natural like this natural part of our brain that that repels us and makes us want to move away from things that are human but not human enough. And I think that that could potentially be part of what creeps us out kind of naturally about this toy. So that's how we're protecting ourselves is, you know, we, mm-hmm. we put some distance between us in this thing. But, you know, if I remember correctly, this kind of went up the ladder. This wasn't just kids and families in their self-preservation. This got bigger, didn't it? Oh, it got very big. And certainly it was, um, as it often is, kids told their urban legends and and got creeped out at night and parents took it to the highest levels of government. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a tale as old. We just heard a podcast episode called Furby's Revenge. It was a collaboration between the podcast American Hysteria and Unspookable with Chelsea Weber-Smith and the team from Unspookable. To cap off our Halloween spooktacular, we're going to hear a conversation with a modern horror movie director. Are you a horror movie fan? Do you keep up with current films? Well, then there's a good chance you're familiar with the work of Jordan Peele. He's created critically acclaimed thrillers like Get Out, Us, and Nope, all of which live up to the hype and center black characters. In this clip from It's Been a Minute with Brittany Luce, Brittany chats with Jordan Peele about his latest project, a book titled Out There Screaming, an anthology of new black horror. Together, they'll unpack unique qualities of black horror movies. A major theme in horror is the apocalypse. So 
my very first question is, would you want to survive the apocalypse? Definitely. What? But you, you say no. You say take me out. Oh, no. I'm like first, I'm first heat going down. Yeah, I understand, right? The, the, the question is, do you want to witness the horror and be put through the pain and suffering? Yeah, that. And also, too, I mean, for me personally, like, I don't want to, like, the new world that comes after that. Yeah. I have poor eyesight. I don't have any of the skills to survive there. That's true. But all things considered, it really can't be too much worse. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, eyesight, that's a trade-off, you know? I mean, that's a real, that's a sense. So that, I I hear you on that. So talking more broadly about horror, now you've edited this series of short horror stories, and obviously you wrote and directed one of the great ones, Get Out. Since then, there's been a growing market for Black horror in Hollywood and in publishing. And part of what I think made the film work so well was that the horror in the film worked on multiple levels. Like there was the situational horror being in this white upper crust environment with your white partner's overeager parents for the weekend, (laughs) but also the horror of being lobotomized and brainwashed into submission. But there's a cultural specificity there that part of what made it so scary. It makes me wonder, what constitutes Black horror? It's hard to answer. You know, in some ways, it's Black authorship, protagonist, Black lead. And the racial dynamic could be front and center, or it can be peripheral. Mm. The subtitle for this book is An Anthology of New Black Horror. And my producer, Alexis, said that that kind of implies that there's an old Black horror And she wants to know, and I want to know too, what makes this new? Mm. This sort of landscape we live in of Black America and what is becoming Mm. less and less white America, but we still recognize a strong hold of white supremacy. The dynamic is shifting every day. There are books that are being challenged that weren't challenged a little while ago. What makes it new is that we're living in a new world every day. Upon reading these, you do find that there is the newness of them. These are, for the most part, Mm -hmm. feel like stories that couldn't be told a couple of years ago because of even the context of the world they're Mm. in. Can you give me an example of something that you're thinking about? A Dark Home by Nnedi Okorafor. The way it combines an ancient African spirit with modern technology and this idea of a smart home Mm. is just something that is just so unique to her sort of world builds and just a beautiful Mm -hmm. story. And and so this is just something that feels so fresh to me and so unexpected and that she's able to pull off essentially dual horror subgenres in here, one with this modern sci-fi and one that feels like this other kind of depth to it. When it came to the short stories and out there screaming, was there like a device or a thesis that just bowled you over in editing this series? You know, there's a a motif of eyes that emerges in several of the stories. Hmm. And it's also a theme in my work and throughout art, but I find it very interesting how there's a really dark association with eyes and vision. And a lot of it is about what we think of as the white gaze or the white supremacist gaze, even in some Mm -hmm. cases. Part of the Black experience is that our identity is so wrapped up in with how we're perceived and how we're seen. 
and how we're imagined to be because of how we're seen. No, that's a really good point. When you say eyes, I think of the first story that appears in the book by N.K. Jemison about a Black cop who sees human eyes in the headlights of cars. As a Black person, you're always the subject, rarely the person who's gazing, rarely the person who's looking. Mm. To just talk for a moment about Get Out and the, the sunken place, which was this mental prison that the main character, Chris, is sent to. And it involves this idea of being able to look through your eyes, to be able to see clearly, but to not mm. be able to have an effect, not be yeah. able to use your judgment or your wisdom or your Blackness to solve this problem. Right. I wonder, and it's something I've been thinking about, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. For a lot of Black people, real life is scary. Like, real life is scary enough. Like you said at the beginning of this conversation, you're curious to see the apocalypse through because you're like, how could things get worse? But I wonder if real life is scary enough for Black people, why do we need Black horror? Well, not, of course, not everyone does. You know, some people just don't like horror. And well, you know, I have, I have a theory about people who don't like horror. These are the same people that will watch 10 seasons of Criminal Minds. Yes. And, Try and act like that's in some dark yes. stuff. Yes, you know, that is interesting. <laughs> but you raise a great question. And this was the big debate going into Get Out, that this was an area, grounded horror, or as grounded as it could be, that explores suffering Black people, white villainry at its most diabolical. And so my fear was if this doesn't, land right, or if this doesn't ring true, people say, what, what are you doing? And so there was just a faith in this idea that if I pull it off, it will release something. And that's sort of exactly what happened. When we are allowed to process our feelings and our fears in creative ways, I feel like hmm. good things happen. From NPR, that was It's Been a Minute. It's hosted by Brittany Luce. That episode was produced by Alexis Williams. The guest in that interview was writer, actor, and director Jordan Peele. So, are you feeling frightened? Good. Then we've done our job. May these podcasts haunt your nightmares. If you'd like to seek revenge and scare us with your podcast recommendations, send them our way. We're on Facebook at CBC Podcast Playlist. You can also email us at podcastplaylist at cbc.ca. Podcast Playlist is Kelsey Casket and Gulian Uzielli, with technical support from Evely Chiarvesio. Our senior producer is Kate S. Pumpkins, and our executive producer is Supernatural Cecil. I'm Leah Simone Boo, and happy Halloween. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.